You're listening to audio from Calvary Baptist Church of Port Austin. If you'd like to check out more resources or learn more about us, please visit cbcportaustin.org. So far in Ecclesiastes, we've learned that life is hard and then you die. Um, We've learned that pleasure doesn't satisfy, that possessions get boring after a while, that achievement won't bring you meaning, and that wisdom will just make you more frustrated. (laughs) Because the more wise you get, the more you realize, man, this world is broke, right? Like something is wrong with this world. And uh, he says that when we try to chase lasting satisfaction in the things and people of this life under the sun, then it's like chasing the wind. Um, it's like that when you, when you go to try to catch smoke, the more you try to catch it, the more it seems to just elude you and it slips through your fingers. And, and it's just this, this chase that never ends, this, this chase that keeps going. And what Solomon is trying to get us to do here is he's trying to wake us up. He's trying to give us a reality check. Now, there are those who, when they read Solomon's um, writing here in Ecclesiastes, that they're so shocked by it that they actually question, should this even be in the Bible? And the reason for that is because Solomon is, is really trying to say, hey, wake up. Okay, life is not just a bed of roses. It's not going to be all perfect. Okay, and what he's trying to get us to do is to recognize that if this life under the sun and the here and now is all we have, then this life is pretty meaningless. And, be, and that's because death is the great equalizer. So you can work really, really hard and, and you can become really wise in this world, but whether you're wise or foolish, you're still going to die. And you can, you can start a business or work at a job and, and be very, very successful, but whether you're successful or unsuccessful, you're still going to die. Um, You can save a lot of money and have a lot of money. You can have a lot of friends. You can be rich or poor. You can can do whatever you want to do in this life under the sun. But in the end, we're all going to die. And the wisest among us is still going to die and be buried next to the most foolish among us. And so what Solomon is trying to get us to wake up and recognize is that there's got to be something more than just life under the sun. And he's trying to get us to see that there's something more. So with that super encouraging and positive backdrop, uh, let's go ahead and open with a word of prayer and then we'll dive into chapter four. Heavenly Father, God, we love you. Thank you so much for Ecclesiastes. And um, it's so, so easy for us to just be on this treadmill called life and just be going and going and going and never stop to recognize that there's more. There's more to this life. And I don't think anyone here purposely ignores eternity or purposely ignores that you're there. But I think it's just so easy with the monotony of daily life to just forget. And Lord, we thank you that Ecclesiastes wakes us up and kind of shakes us a little bit and says, hey, you're chasing the wind. And so, Lord, please lead us as we walk through chapter four, um, that it would be a profitable time together. We love you in Jesus name. Amen. So in chapter four, Solomon is not done ranting um, about life under the sun, okay? So it seems like as we're reading, it's like super negative, and then we get a little glimpse of positivity. Some think he's just being sarcastic. Some think he's actually being positive, and, and then it gets super negative again, and then it's positive. And, and here we're kind of getting into that negativity again. In verse 1, this is what he says. So I returned and considered all the oppressions that are done under the sun. So, so he's just looking around at this life, and he's looking at just all the, all the pain, all the oppression, all the hate, all the evil. And behold, the tears of such as were oppressed, and they had no comforter. And on the side of their oppressors there was power, but they had no comforter. 
So he's looking around and he sees that these very powerful people are oppressing the weak people and it's just this cycle and the weak people don't have anyone to comfort them and and there's tears and there's no comfort and it's just a wicked, broken world. And look at his conclusion in verse 2. He says, Wherefore, I praise the dead which are already dead more than the living which are yet alive. So he's saying, look, it's really, when I look around and I'm honest, Okay, because some of us are more positive, right? Like I always see the glass half full. That's just my personality. But, but if we're honest and we look around and we really watch the news and we look at the evil that takes place in this world, what Solomon's saying is like, hey, it, it's better to be dead. And, and I'm like, whoa, right? And, and then he goes on and he says, actually, no. In verse 3, yea, better is he than both they which hath not yet been, who hath not seen the evil work that is done under the sun. So you say, no, actually, it's better that you were never born. Because then you don't have to see it. Like, that's how broken and evil and wicked this world is. He's like, you'd be better off dead. Or, in fact, you'd be better off if you had never existed. And again, that's, that's shock factor. But, but he's saying, under the sun. If, if this is all there is, life under the sun, then it's just better that you hadn't existed. Okay? Again, very, very shocking. Now, for some of you today, you're like, Man, Solomon's just a nut job, right? Like, like he's negative and, and he's just crazy. But for some of you, this is really real life for you. Like, you've been oppressed. Oppression is not just a word. Like, that's real. Like, you've been betrayed. You've been hurt. You've been through trials. And, and, and for you, these are more than just words. This is reality. You know, for us as Christians, we, we have scriptures, and so it's easy for us to give quick, trite answers to people's pain and their trouble, but recognize people are walking through some of this stuff. Like, we're dealing with real life here, and, and that's why um, I try not to be one of those preachers that just tries to give you four steps to a happy life and send you on your way. Because if you do the four steps and you're still not happy, then, then, then what's wrong? Is it, is it you? And, and then sometimes you come to this place, and you see us in our suits, and we're smiling, and we're happy, and we're, good morning, good morning. But, but you're broken and you're hurting. Listen, listen, it's so easy to put on a fake here. It's so easy to give quick answers, but there is oppression. There is evil. There is pain. And rather than just brush over that, we've got to recognize that as Christians. And we've got to reach out to people in their pain and show them the love of Jesus. So as we're walking through this, what Solomon is, is saying is saying, look, I'm looking around and it's just, it's, it's evil, it's broken, it's horrible. And, and man, I, I don't understand it. And he really doesn't give us an answer except giving us two kind of paths that we can go down with this backdrop of the evil in this world. There's two ways that we can kind of respond to this evil. And when it comes to looking around in the first way, it's to just focus on ourselves. To just say, well, this world is broken, it's evil, so I'm just going to get all I can and can't all I get. Um, I can't trust anyone, and so it's just me, and maybe my spouse, maybe not, maybe it's just me, and I'm just going to go at this thing alone. I don't need anyone's help. And we get very self-absorbed and focused on us. And then the other path is to say, you know what, this world is broken, this world is hurt, this world, there is pain, but we're not called to do this alone. We're called to do this together. And he's going to say, later in the verse, he's going to say, two are better than one. And he's going to walk through that. And so we're going to compare these two lives um, in this sin-cursed world. The life of isolation and the life of community. So first, let's look at life in isolation. In verse 4, he says this again. I considered all travail and every right work that for this a man is envied of his neighbor. 
This is also vanity and vexation of spirit. So this is what he's saying. He's saying, when I looked around and I saw like people who were really skillful and people who were really working hard, you know what hit him as he was looking at that? He says, the only reason they're doing that is out of envy for their neighbor. Like they just want to be better than other people. Now think about this today. The clothes that you're wearing right now, you didn't buy those clothes because you needed them. Right? You probably bought those clothes because you wanted them, if we're just being honest. Like all of us have an abundance of clothes. But why do we, why do we get certain clothes um, because it looks good and we want people to see them, see people in our clothes, right? If we're just being honest, there's a little bit of envy there. Why do we drive the car that we drive? If we were to walk out and just look at your car that you're driving today, um, is it because you really, really needed that specific model of car? Or could you have done with something maybe a little bit cheaper, maybe a little bit more rust? Probably, right? But why do we buy the nicer car? Now, there's nothing wrong with it except when it becomes envy of neighbor. Like, well, I just want to show my coworkers that I'm a little bit better than they are, right? And, and so here's another example. Why do we go to Starbucks when we could go to the gas station and get coffee that's actually a little bit better sometimes, right? Because there's just something about that green and white cup that's just like, I understand, right? I, I get it right? As I sip on that, right? There, there's just these status symbols in our culture and it's just ridiculous. Right. And it's all envy of neighbor. And Solomon's looking around. And he's like, how can you deal with this? How can you look at the oppression of this world? And then you look at the people who are working hard and they're so self-absorbed that they're doing everything just to be better than their neighbor. And I was looking, um, I was looking this past week on different articles and different status symbols of our culture right now. And it was Hilarious to read this one article, but the, the, the title of the article was literally How to Be Better Than Everyone Else in 2018. Like, that, that's our culture, right? Like, we, we want to be better than that person. We want to, why do we go to the gym? Those, those of you who work out, do you go to the gym so that you can be healthy and have better energy levels? Or if you're honest, you go to the gym so that this summer when you go to the beach, People will see, right? Like that's one of the driving factors. And, and so, so as we think about the things that we do, Solomon's saying is, look, most of it, most of it, it's just envy of neighbor. You're just trying to be better than, than other people. And social media is going to elevate this to an entirely different level to where I had steak for dinner and I'm going to post it. I went to this vacation and the whole vacation was miserable, but we're going to take a great selfie on the beach and make everybody think it was great. Right? We're going we're gonna to have the most perfect family photo ever, although before the photo, this kid was crying, and this kid was punching this kid, this kid was biting his leg. It was just chaos, but we smile for the photo. Everybody thinks we're this perfect, beautiful family. Why? Envy of neighbor. Just want to be better than everyone else. And Solomon is saying, like, really? Really? Is, is that worth it? He continues in verse 5. There's another way self-absorbed people kind of respond in this life. And he says, The fool foldeth his hands together and eateth his own flesh. Now again, you're like, what? Right? Like, this is poetry, okay? He's using poetic phrases to kind of wake us up again. Um, but what he's saying is another way to respond is that you look at the Joneses and you realize, I ain't never going to be the Joneses, so I'm just going to give up. Right? And so, so certain people, we, we know people like that that, literally have just given up on themselves. Like they have no self-respect. They have no care for anyone else. They're just lazy. And they literally are just devouring themselves because they're so lazy. And I heard one commentary say that Ecclesiastes says, um, a lot of times we hear the, the phrase, when you get to your deathbed, um, you'll never say, I wish I had spent more time in the office. And Ecclesiastes is saying, you're going to say at least, I wish I would have spent a little bit of time in the office for this guy, right? He's just folding his hands and devouring himself. 
He's just lazy and, and he doesn't care about anyone but himself and he's just discouraged and depressed and so he's just sitting around. That's one way to respond. But then there's the flip side of the, the coin here in verse 6. He says, Better is a handful with quietness than both the hands full with travail and vexation of spirit. So he's saying it's better just to have a little bit in one hand, leave this hand open to be able to serve your neighbor than to have both hands so full of stuff that you can't handle it. It's chasing the wind. Verse 7, then I returned and I saw vanity under the sun. I saw emptiness. There is one alone and there is not a second. Yea, he hath neither child nor brother, yet it is their end of all his labor. Neither is his eye satisfied with riches. Neither saith he, for whom do I labor and bereave my soul of good? This also vanity, yea, it is a sore travail. So he's saying some people, rather than respond with laziness, they respond with manic busyness. They respond with working harder. They respond with doing more. They respond with chasing faster. And, and, and they, they, they work so hard and they work so fast and they're so busy going, going, going that they never stop and ask the question, why am I working so hard? He's saying, you see, some people over here, they're just lazy. They're just sitting around doing nothing. Then there's people over here that are just going, 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 and they don't have any friends and they don't have any genuine relationships because they're just going so fast, right? Like it's confessions of a workaholic here. Kind of the pendulum swing. And these types of people, they think that tomorrow is going to be better. They just keep thinking, tomorrow, tomorrow I'm going to read my Bible more. Tomorrow I'm going to get better in my church attendance. Tomorrow I'm going to spend more time with the family. Tomorrow I'll get that promotion and things will be better. Tomorrow I'll plan that vacation. And, and you just keep pushing it off because you're chasing the wind. You're on this treadmill of life and you're working so hard that you're not recognizing the people in your life. You're so focused on more. And I love how one of my commentaries said this, David Gibson, he said, the preacher's point is that to live this way is like shooting yourself in one foot so that you can hop more quickly with the other. Right? It's just foolishness. Like, man, I'm just so busy. I'm so Both hands are full and I'm just going, going, going. Eventually, I'm going to call my dad. I know we got to chat. Eventually, I'm going to sit down with the kids and have some quality time. But right now, I've, I've got to do this and tomorrow I'll get to that. And he's saying they're alone. They don't have any real relationships. They, they don't consider the cost. David Gibson says this also. He says, live the life you have now instead of longing for a life you think you will have, but which you actually cannot control at all. Like if we're always living in, in this future moment when things are going to be better, what if we don't get there? What if we die tonight? What, what he's saying is stop chasing the wind. Right? Like stop thinking that there's something out there that's better. Be content with God and with the gifts he's given you and with the people he's placed in your life now. Don't be so isolated and self-absorbed. You know, I've never met someone who was talking about their childhood and they were complaining because their parents weren't very well off. I've, I've really never met anyone that was like, yeah, it was hard when we were kids and man, my parents didn't have any money and it, and it was terrible. And I, I rarely hear that line, but you know what I do hear a lot? I hear people, especially in college, I heard people that had very, very wealthy parents. That I mean, they, they could buy you any car you wanted. They could send you to any school you wanted. They could do whatever you wanted. But they didn't have any quality time with their parents. And they were really messed up. Because a lot of times, our view of God is a direct reflection of our relationship with our earthly father or earthly parents. 
And in America, it's so easy to chase the wind. It's so easy to become a workaholic that we think we're doing our, our children a favor by making more money. But really what they need is just more time. And, and I'll just be honest with you. We did not have a lot of money growing up. Like, we didn't, okay? If I wanted designer clothes, I had to save up and get it myself. Like, if I saw my, my friends with, like, the American Eagle or the Hollister stuff, like, I had to, like, get a job and work for it. Because my dad, he's like, hey, I'll buy you Wrangler jeans. I'll buy you Walmart, but that's it. Right, but can I just be honest with you? I was never, I never look back at my child and say, man, I wish my parents were more wit, rich. But you know what I do look back and think? I'm like, I'm glad that my parents were there. Like they invested in me. They took time and invested in me. And my dad could have worked more jobs, but he chose time with us children. Like, like my mom could have went out and got a career. She's very, very talented, but she chose to be with us and to invest in us, recognizing that that is worth it. That is a big deal. And so often we're chasing the wind and we're neglecting the relationships that are most important in our lives. And Solomon is saying, hey, stop. Stop it. You don't need more. You really don't. I love how G.K. Chesterton said this. He says, there are two ways to get enough. One is to accumulate more and more. And the other is just to desire less. <laughs> right? Pretty simple. Right? If we would just be content with the things that we have, then we wouldn't be on this treadmill. We wouldn't be in this rat race chasing more. And so what Solomon is doing here is he's showing you what a life of self-absorption can lead to. It can lead to envy of neighbor, trying to be better than your neighbor. It can lead to just laziness, just giving up on life, just not caring about anyone. It can lead to manic busyness of work, 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 work. And then he's going to contrast that with a better way. And he's going to contrast that by showing us life in community. All right, so let's look at verse 9. He says, two are better than one. Two are better than one. Right off the bat, he's going to argue that community is better. It's better than isolation. It's better than self-absorption. That, that looking around at your neighbor and, and looking around at the people and being with those people is better than being alone. Why? Well, he's going to list several reasons, okay? He's going to continue by saying they're going to produce more because they have a good reward for their labor. They're going to produce more. They're going to get more done together. There's going to be a good reward because they're working together. When I was in um, Dundee at my first job and ministry, um, when I pulled up, I'll be honest, the house was pretty rough. Um, to give you a little backdrop, my mom literally started crying and left, and she could not bear with the idea of me living in this house um, and it, it was pretty bad when my dad pulled up the floor in the bathroom. I'm not going to tell you what we found, but it was bad, okay? And um, we found that it was really, really bad upstairs. And uh, apparently, like, an entire um, host or tribe of bats had kind of moved into our house upstairs. So what I decided to do is just condemn the upstairs. Like, just block it off with a sheet and just focus on the downstairs. So I was putting up drywall and I was fixing some things. And cool, cool story is the insurance actually saw the bathroom and they're like, yeah, you can't live in here. So they actually paid to get the bathroom replaced. So that was cool. Um, lived in a hotel for 40 days. That was interesting. And the day Tyler showed up after the summer, the pool closed. We always talk about that. Like, Tyler, I'm at, I'm at this, this hotel and we got pool, free breakfast. And shows up, pool's closed that day. But anyway, Anyways, um, Tyler shows up, and I'll be honest, I was working hard, I was painting, I was doing all this stuff, and, and it was tough, but when Tyler showed up, I realized two is better than one. Like, it helped to have Tyler there, and it helped when the bats did make their way downstairs, 
to have Tyler there, okay? Like, we, we were talking about this just the other day at our house. Like, one time, um, Tyler was working, and he was pounding holes into this plaster so that we could put drywall up, and a big, like, I'm not kidding, like, 12-inch wingspan bat, like, flew out of the wall at him, and he just, I'm on the phone with Shannon in the other room, and this bat just comes flying by, and he's like, ah, oh, you know, screaming, and he runs out, and I'm like, what's wrong? And all of a sudden, it swoops over my head, and I'm like, whoa, babe, I gotta go, and I hang up the phone, and, like, bats are flying around, and one time, we went to the house and we get in the house you know long day of work gonna sit down on the couch maybe enjoy some who knows tv video games and there's a bat on our couch just sitting on our couch like just squawking at us and i'm like ah like that's just too far right like you can fly around like that's annoying you can fly around and then we can get you out but don't sit on my couch right like that's like personal space right so we had to catch it another time we had to go upstairs and catch one it was horrible but i'll be honest with you two was better than one like it was very nice to have tyler there and and he can tell you that after i left and came to caseville that it, it was worse alone like he had to catch some of those bats by himself and and what solomon is saying i know we're being silly but he's saying two people can get more done there's a better reward for their labor. They can produce more. He continues in verse 10. For if they fall, the one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him that is alone when he falleth, for he hath not another to help him up. This is pretty obvious, but what he's saying is when there's two together and one of them falls, then he can help him up. And, and yes, this is talking about physically, I think, but I think it's also poetry again. And so he's, he's talking about when you fall in life. You know, we are going to fall at times. As Christians, we're going to trip. As Christians, we're, we're going to stumble. We're going to have hard times. But here's the thing. If you're always alone and you're always self-absorbed and you're not in genuine Christian community, then you're not going to see the blind spots. Because here's the thing. You can't see something you're blind to. Okay? Pretty simple. And we all have blind spots in our lives. And that's one of the reasons we're called to do this together. And listen, I have friends that can speak into my life and can tell me, hey, Michael, I'm worried about you. I'm concerned about you. Hey, how's you walk with the Lord? How, how's your prayer life? How, how is this? And, they, and they're, they're open, just completely open, and they can speak into my life because I know I need that. We need accountability. We need help when we fall. We need to go have someone that we can go to when we're struggling and when we're hurt. That's what he's saying here. Because when we do fall, and we will, then we can have people in our lives to pick us up. Community can point out our blind spots, love us enough to tell us when we're wrong, and help pick us up when we fall. Verse 11, he continues with another reason. So, two are better than one because they produce more, because they can help each other. Thirdly, because they can comfort one another. In verse 11, again, if two lie together, then they have heat, but how can one be warm alone? Now, for all you single guys who are highlighting that verse right now, just slow down. All right, we're going to explain that. Okay, um, what he's saying here is he's saying that there's going to be times in life when it's cold. Like winter, when winter comes, what is it marked by? Like death, <laughs> cold, isolation. And when the times in your life, when winter comes, if you're in community, they can help keep you warm. And, and so many Christians have fallen away or left the church because when winter came, and it will come, they were alone. They didn't have any genuine relationships to help them through that, and they were alone, and the winter came, and they were cold, and they were done. And listen, if you're not in the middle of winter right now in your life, winter is coming. 
And I'm not trying to be negative. I'm just being honest with you. Winter is coming. And I'm telling you, it's way better to have someone in your life for when the winter comes. All right. So what he's saying is two are better than one because they can produce more. They can help each other. They can comfort each other. And then he's got one more in verse 12. And if one prevail against him, two shall withstand him. And a threefold cord is not quickly broken. Now, I've heard a lot of preachers talk about uh, what he's saying here is, is, is their strength in numbers. And so if two are good, but three is even better. And, and they've kind of kind of go a little bit far with that and say, you need Jesus in the mix. And that's totally true. You do. But I think he's just being like honest with us, like three is actually better. So what he's trying to point out is that there's even more um, strength in, in a group of three. That's what he's pointing out. Now, I, I'm happy to apply that to you do need God in your life. You do need Jesus in your life. Like you and your spouse and Jesus, that's a good threefold cord, okay? Um, but what he's talking about is there is better um, return. There is better protection when there's more of us. And listen, there is an attack going on. And I think one of the reasons that American Christianity over the years has kind of gotten a little bit soft and a little bit watered down is because we've lost that wartime mindset. And I say it all the time, but if you look at history, the church has always thrived when they were being persecuted. Like you, you add persecution to the mix and it explodes because it weeds out the Christians who aren't legit and the real Christians spread out sharing their faith. That's just, that's just how it is all throughout history. In America, we've had such peace that we've forgotten that we are in a battle. A battle against Satan, a battle against demons, a battle against this culture that just wants to push God out of it. And, and rather than try to politically attack and do things like that in, in stupid places, we need to be praying. We need to be together in community. We need to be praying for our neighbors and reaching them with the gospel. All right? So often Christians get entangled in the wrong things. Okay? But what he's saying here is if there's strength in numbers. And when this culture, this war of culture kind of turns the tide against us in Christianity, we need each other. We need each other because people are going to attack. People are going to try to hurt us in, in this broken world. And the rest of the chapter, he's going to give a little story about a rich um, king and then a poor wise child. And he's going to say it's better to be that poor wise child than to be a rich king who can't take any advice. What he's saying in a life of isolation, people can come, become very successful and they can even have great riches and authority. But if they don't surround themselves with people, genuine relationships that can speak into their lives, then it's vanity. It's chasing the wind. So as I thought about how this applies to us today, I have to be honest with you. I don't think this is anything new for us. Like this isn't groundbreaking truth, right? Like we know we are not called to do this alone. We're called to do this together. Christianity is not a solo sport. You won't find someone in the New Testament, a good, solid Christian growing in the Lord that's not connected to a local gathering of believers. And, and we know that we're called to do life together. We're called to bear one another's burdens. I've shown you the church in Acts and, and the awesome things they did. I've shown you all the one another's in the scriptures, how we're supposed to love one another and, and pray for one another and bear one another's burdens and forgive one another. And there's all these one another's and even the Lord's prayer, our father, right? Like that's a group thing. That's not my father. In America, we're very individualistic and, and the New Testament is opposite of that. It's community. It's together. It's people doing life together for the gospel. Jesus, when he was praying for us, he said, I want them to be one. I want them to have unity in diversity. I want people to look at them and to see how they love one another and that they'll know that, that they're my disciples. Okay, so this isn't new. I've been preaching this 
from day one. But the question is, why are there any of us who aren't walking in this deep, genuine Christian community? And listen, I'm not thinking of anyone in particular here, okay? I'm just asking the question, why aren't there more people taking steps towards community? It can't happen, um, like I can't, I can't like mix and match some of you together and say, all right, go have coffee. Like that, that doesn't happen that way. So what I do is I try to create environments where you can get to know each other. You can keep your distance if you want, or you can, you can kind of decide who you want to be friends with or whatever. Like we're all called to love each other, but you are going to connect with different people on a, on a more deeper level at times. But I was thinking like, why aren't more of us pursuing this? Because Solomon is right, like two are better than one. And when I look back at this, this year and a half as this new church, the highlights of this past year are, are when we're in our house and, and we're playing games and, and we're passing around the tablet playing this game and, and the same game, we're, we're laughing hysterically and then the next minute we're crying because someone opened up or, or the times at the beach where we're just laughing and hanging out or the times in here on Sunday nights or those, those moments where we're really close in community, that's what this is about. And so why aren't more of us experiencing this? And I thought just from this text, there's two possible reasons. Um, They're pretty much the same. But first of all, you may want it, but you're so self-absorbed that you can't find it. Like you want this. And when you hear us talk about this, you're like, man, I like that. I want community. But but you're the type of person that's so fixated on themselves that it's hard for people to connect with you. Like it's you and you alone. Or it's you and your people or whatever. And again, I'm not thinking of anyone in particular. I'm just telling you what the text says. Solomon is saying there's people that are like that. And then there's another reason is you don't want it because you're self-absorbed. Okay, so you want it, but you're self-absorbed so you can't connect with anyone. Or you don't want it because you're so self-absorbed. You're like, ah, that doesn't really sound good to me and so I'm good. But you forget about the fact that you have something to bring to the table. That have you ever considered that when you come to church, you encourage other people? When you show up for stuff, you encourage other people. You have something to bring. It's, it's, more, it's less about me and more about we, right? So either you really want it and you're just a hard person to connect with, or you don't want it because you don't care. And so the question is, are you one of those self-absorbed people that Solomon described? Okay, again, not thinking of anyone in particular, but let's just talk about this for a second. Okay, let's think about some of the things he said. Envy of neighbor. Is there a part of you that ever secretly rejoices when other people fall or when other people fail? You can be honest here. You don't have to raise your hand, but think about it. That coworker really gets on your nerves. They're doing something stupid and the boss catches them. Yes, right? Right? We got people in our lives that we, we kind of, yeah, they had that coming. We have people in our life and we look at me, yeah, that's a nice car. Kind of like to have a car like that, right? Like we have people in that, but is that something that consumes you, that you're always trying to be better than someone else? Are you someone that's just lazy? You just folded your hands. You just don't care. You just, I know that community is better, but you know what? I don't really care. Just focus on myself. I can't, I can't keep up with the Joneses, so I'm just going to devour myself. Or maybe you're just so busy chasing the wind that you don't slow down, get off the treadmill, and look at this life and the people God has placed in your life. So are you one of those people? And I think what Solomon is trying to get us to do is to ask a better question. Because if we were to take a minute and we were able to have the technology to plug into your brain and put all of your thoughts from last week up on the screen for all of us to see and picture. Okay, that'd be really, really terrifying for some, right? Um, But if we were to see that, how much of your thoughts would be consumed 
with me. Not me, with you, okay? With yourself, right? <laughs> if they're consumed with me, like, I hope it's just praying for me, okay? All right? Um, but seriously, how much of your thoughts are, are just completely centered on yourself? How many times do you ask the question, how am I doing? What do I need? I'm hungry. I'm thirsty. I want to do this. I want to do that. They won't do this for me. I can't believe they did that to me. Right? Like how much of your thoughts are centered on yourself? And, and I think what Solomon is getting us to say, instead of asking how am I, because we ask that constantly. Like that's just our, our first natural response, waking up in the morning. Instead of asking how am I, ask how are we? How are we? Now, I want you to think about the impact that this could make just in our homes. If fathers and husbands would stop asking, how am I? And ask more often, how are we? How's our family? How are my kids doing? How's my wife? I'm hungry. You know what? That probably means my wife's hungry. I'm going to check with her. I'm, I'm thirsty. Maybe my kids need something. And, and how would that impact our jobs? Right? Instead of it being all about me and just trying to climb that ladder, what if, what if we stopped and looked around and asked, how are we doing? How's my coworker? You know, I can, I can tell something's seriously wrong with this person, and, and so I'm going to pray for them. I'm going to reach out to them. I'm going to show them the love. Instead of trying to put myself in front, I'm going to put them first. How would this impact our church? Right? Instead of all, all the time filtering events or filtering services through what would I like to do, what if you filtered it through how would this impact us together, corporately? How would this impact our community if we would just ask the question more often instead of how am I? We ask the question, how are we? How are we doing? You know, I, I have this vision for our church, and, and it's, it's happening. It's slow, but it's happening. But I have this vision of that Acts chapter 2 church, like where we are hanging out together. We are breaking bread in our homes, and we are gathering. We're laughing. We're, we're having a good time. We're just doing life together. We're, we're rejoicing when one of us gets a promotion, and we're weeping when one of us is going through a hard time. And, and I have this vision for our church, and, and we are walking in that direction. But I, but I want to challenge you, if you're not part of that, take a step today. Man, I envision unity and diversity. I picture us loving God and others. And, and I picture every member on mission, this, this, this growing, vibrant community of believers just here together for each other. Take a step today. Like, this isn't just a, a quick thing. Like, community takes time. That's why we have Sunday nights. That's why we have a book club, reading group on Wednesdays. Take a step today. Get involved today. How can you be more a part of this community because listen community is better than isolation two are better than one solomon is right here this world is broken this world is wicked this world is hurting but two are better than one listen god has not called you to do the christian life alone he's called us to do it together so take a step today that's how you're designed to flourish in community Take a step today. Stop asking, how am I? And start asking, how are we? Because we're not called to live alone. We're called to live together.